Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are now entering a critical thinking zone. zone. Thinking caps are required beyond this point. From deep behind enemy lines, deep in the heart of the Midwest, it's your host, Andrew Coppins. And it's time for Critical Thinking. What's up, everybody? Andrew Coppins here, solo for the rest of this week. Yes, Pat is off dealing with some issues around the house and... Um, with things within the family, um, nothing super, super serious, hopefully, um, but I'm giving him the week off to be able to handle those things distraction free. So you've got me, myself and I today, I am lining up a guest or two over the course of the next few days. And, um, so hopefully it won't be just me, myself and I with you. So having said that here on today's show, what are we going to be talking about? Well, we're going to talk about winning in the 2022 election. That's right, we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about a war on religion and the ongoing war on science. And what do I mean by that? Well, we'll get into that in the third part of the show, but up front here, I want to talk about winning because over the course of this past weekend, we saw examples of exactly why. And this comes from the draft decision um, that was going to strike down Roe versus Wade in, uh, I believe it was the case of Dobbs versus Jackson's Women Health or Jackson's Women Health versus Dobbs. I can't remember which way uh, that course, court case is working. But either way, um, we saw absolute insanity. Um, there's a video out there of this woman in New York City protesting in front of a church, and it's got to be the most insane thing I have ever seen. So insane, in fact, that Playing it here, and if you were listening via podcast instead of watching on a Rumble page, rumble.com backslash critical thinking, by the way, um, you can hit that subscribe button and never miss an episode of this show. But if you were to just watch that video, it, it, it would make your head explode. But because this is a podcast and the video show, I, I can't play the video because it, without watching it, it doesn't really do it justice. But go ahead and find it on your social media. I'm sure you can uh, by now, especially if you are on Twitter. Again, you can follow me at The Coppin Show on social media. And there was a ton of other stuff you had in my home state of Wisconsin. The back crap, crazy, leftist, far left lunacy that is Madison, Wisconsin, rears ugly head to the point where, that's right, they tried to firebomb Wisconsin pro-life in the state capitol, not in the actual state capitol building, but in the capital of the state of Wisconsin. And then writing something about if abortion isn't safe, neither are you on it. Now, luckily, the Molotov cocktail, because these people are, how, how shall I say this um, politely, idiots. Um, it didn't go off the way that they wanted it to and it burned itself out and 
never actually caught the building on fire. The other lucky part of that is the fact that there was nobody in the building when it happened. But I bring this up because these are two prime examples. The lunacy of this video that's out in New York City about screaming, I'm going to kill my baby and, and all this weird stuff. And then the actual violence committed in the name of abortion. Let's be clear, that's exactly what this was. So you got those two things. And I subscribe to this theory quite often. We should be pushing these cultural issues, this culture war issue. We should be okay standing up for our values and the systems and the things that we believe to be correct. Because as I have said, I am staunchly pro-life. I believe your, your body, your choice ends the moment that you decide to engage in sexual intercourse. Well, what about those who don't? Well, take a look at uh, the situation in the um, the Pennsylvania primary, right? Mehmet Oz, and then you had um, Catherine Bennett, who comes up and talks about very openly and very honestly the case of the fact that uh, her mother is 11 years older than her because she was raped at the age of 11, conceived her child at the age of 12. She wouldn't be here today if her mom hadn't <clears throat> chosen life, although it wasn't really even a choice for her mother. Byproduct of that 1.1% that or that 0.1% of cases of abortions, right? That rape and incest. Yet, so my whole point in all of that is to say this. When you take a look at all of these issues, we tend on the right to want to placate the left. We tend to want to, to, to play nice, if you will, to play the weak argument. Instead, Bennett's argument, Bennett's story, helps us make the meek and powerful case that I make all the time, that your right to kill somebody stops the second you engage in an activity that creates a new life. And if you're not ready to accept that responsibility, then there are ways to do that. Now, my church teaches abstinence. My church teaches that contraceptives are wrong. That is my church. Plenty of people inside the church don't agree with that other part of it, the contraceptive part of it, and they, they engage in that, and that is their choice. But to act as if the in-the-moment situation in which you are engaging in that isn't most often premeditated and thus a quote-unquote, unwanted pregnancy, preventable, is ludicrous. It is 100% ludicrous. But notice, as soon as we go through the, we're going to strike down Roe versus Wade and the Casey decision, we're going to strike down those two as unconstitutional and wrongly decided. Look what happens to the far left, the pro-abortion activist set. They go insane. What do we also know about this? Well, polling in over the course of the weekend and on Monday especially has shown a plus two gain for the GOP in the generic balloting that's being done by various polling uh, organizations. Just because of the weekend, the, the insanity that the left exposed of themselves gave us, and by us, I mean those of us who support pro-life and those of us who are supporting potentially 
changing from leftism to, well, less leftism in the GOP? The lesser of the two evils, when we are looking at the generic balloting, the lesser of the two evils, when we look at potentially flipping the House and the Senate, are gaining even stronger numbers simply by allowing the left to go crazy when we push the envelope on cultural issues. We saw it with Glenn Youngkin, right? And he has been a a disappointment like I thought he was going to be because if you took a look at his election campaign prior to the moment of CRT and all of the, the things that were happening in the state of Virginia around education, prior to that, he was a milk toast, run-of-the-mill, pretty much anti-conservative. But they pushed in Virginia on that cultural issue. And when they pushed on that cultural issue, they won. And they won big in that state. That's the blueprint we need here. But my friends over at The Federalist have given us three things that Republicans should do to stop losing and start winning when they take back Congress in 2022. Okay, this should be interesting, right? Because I have a feeling that there should be three main things that they focus in on. Number one, reigning in inflation. Number one is to create a tax code, to create a situation that deals with the inflation and structurally changes how we interact with the capitalistic economy that we should have and don't have in this country. There are things that we could do when it comes to our border. There are things that we could come to do around immigration. There are things that we could do when it comes to fighting endless wars, funding wars in Ukraine versus taking care of people here in the United States of America first and foremost. And how do we do that? Well, <clears throat> um, the, the Federalist has a list that comes from Spencer Christian or Creatin. I'm not, not exactly sure how to uh, pronounce his last name. But I think you'll find this interesting because here is the first thing that they need to do. Yes, that's right. Pass legislation pressuring the Supreme Court to reconsider New York Times versus Sullivan. The Supreme Court's 1964 decision in New York Times versus Sullivan made it almost impossible for public officials in later cases made it almost impossible for public figures defined extremely broadly to win defamation lawsuits in America. From the earliest days of our republic, however, states have been free to decide how best to balance the need to ensure vigorous public debate and the principle that those are, who are defamed are entitled to a remedy. This all changed in the 1960s when the Supreme Court required public figures to prove quote-unquote actual malice if the, they alleged defamation, a nearly impossible standard to meet. Conservatives love to complain about media bias. But imagine how different the landscape would be if CNN was sure to lose millions of dollars every time it defamed a conservative public figure, whether that person chose a public life or became a public figure by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. They continued to point to Nick Sandman, Kyle Rittenhouse, Sarah Palin, Brett Kavanaugh, right? That, that, that is their list. That is the number one thing that they should do. To, to do what again? It is stop losing and start winning. That is your first thing that they should do. Focus on defamation lawsuits. What? What are you talking about? You think the American people give two flips about New York Times versus Sullivan or the ability of quote unquote public figures to to work on defamation lawsuits. By the way, Nick Sandman has already won a defamation lawsuit. Kyle Rittenhouse is going to win lots of defamation lawsuits. 
They don't need to worry about this. This is the number one thing that we got to do to stop losing and start winning. Now, do I get the idea and the concept here? Hey, we're going to punish our enemies. We're going to make sure that they no longer can just flat out lie against us and then change the media landscape a little bit here. I understand the thought process here, but are you shitting me? Are you shitting me when it comes to this? This is this is what we're this is what we're worried about. This is the loser GOP that I am talking about and I have talked about for a long time. This is the bull crap that they will focus in on for what aim and what purpose? The American people want a plan, a vision for the future a way forward out of inflation, high taxes, all the things that are going on economically. Oh, by the way, we barely, barely have recovered the jobs that we lost during the uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And oh, wait, the GOP caused the start of those losses, by the by. What in the hell is that? Now, number two on this list is going to be interesting. It is unabashedly defend meritocracy in education. He continues to say, conservatives rightfully talk about equal opportunity and devote much of their attention to expanding education opportunities for those at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder. But the point of equal opportunity is ultimately to secure a meritocracy, an idea that is worth defending on its own. We need to celebrate American ingenuity and those who rise to the top, no matter where they started. We need an education system that pursues excellence. The most excellent students will create the jobs of the future. They will develop new treatments for cancer. They will explore space. They will make scientific discoveries we cannot even imagine. They will invent new ways to protect the environment and reduce pollution. This one, I think, is actually good. That's right, folks. This one, I think, is actually going to be good for us. Why? Because we are losing to China. We are losing to other countries all over the globe. We were really the only ones to lock down our educational system in mass for evs for over a year. In the entire world. And what are we seeing? Developmental issues, especially in the lower socioeconomic areas, whether that's rural or urban, by the way. Kids who could not or do not have proper adult supervision or adult uh, participation in their education have fallen significantly behind their peers. This is creating an educational gap that may have long-lasting generational consequences to it. Why? Because we don't focus on the excellence of education. We focus in on making sure that everybody feels good in education today. Some have called it the race to the bottom. Some people call it the dumbing down of our education, whatever it is. The American ingenuity that we speak of comes from what? Competition. And where do most people learn to compete? It's one of two areas in their lives early on. It's in education or it's on the sports field or some other form of academic competition or uh, achievement or pageants or whatever. Most people learn competition at a very young age. And here's a newsflash to the leftists. Competition and meritocracy are good for society. They are a common good. That is the reality of all of this. So focusing in on putting education and an emphasis on a meritocracy in education back into education would be great. But 
You are fighting a bureaucracy that is absolutely entrenched from the highest to the lowest, from the we're going to groom your kids to we are going to be the ones grooming your kids. From the we're going to groom your four-year-old set to I learned to how to groom your four-year-old while I was getting my <clears throat> education and my degree in education crowd. How do you fix that? You can't overnight. But there are ideas that he brings out here, like conditioning federal grants on having a certain ratio of faculty to administrators. You know, people who actually teach versus those who don't. And frankly, that's almost inverted these days. We could demand STEM slots for American students. That's what he argues. I don't know if that's necessarily where I would go, but I would de-emphasize foreign slots in these places of higher education when it comes to STEM. I would encourage at a very young age, this is what I would do. I would be focusing in on that four, five, six, and seven-year-old set. And what I would do is I would focus hard on STEM. I would focus hard on educating all of those kids in these things. I would focus less on the traditional, you know, um, ways of going about teaching your science, your, um, your math, right? Your reading. What I would do is I would actually incorporate them all together in some sort of an all-encompassing STEM-focused idea in a platform. How do you how do you teach and make it engaging, right? Well, you show them practical uses. And STEM is all practicality. It's not just theory. So you can do things like the experiments and the things like that. Teach them these things. Emphasize practicality over just test, test, test all the time. But also show them how these things are interconnected and how they are separate. Hey, by the way, did you know this is how you get this in math? Or, hey, by the way, now that you're in um, fifth grade, we're going to teach you starting or we're going to start you learning how to code. Well, that takes reading, comprehensive skills, right? That's a great example of how you do that. So I don't necessarily think that you have to limit the higher education opportunities of foreign nationals coming to America to have Americans compete with them. Because here's the reality of the situation. If you make STEM more practical, STEM education less boring, STEM education more engaging for people of all sorts of demographics, then guess what? You will find people wanting to compete. You are going to find people wanting to get these types of educations going forward. But when they don't see it in their lives, when they don't participate with it, when it's not a participatory thing, when they can't compete, there you go. And it's not about who got the best test score, by the way. That's not competition. Competition is using that in a practical way, like competing in a science fair or competing in a robot building competition or all sorts of things. You know, I was lucky enough to have that when I was growing up, but that was because I was in a gifted program and you can't say those words anymore. Well, guess what? We could broaden that. We don't have to give it to the gifted in our society. We can have that as part and parcel of an all-encompassing education. We need to change that at the five, six, seven-year-old levels, right? That kindergarten, first, second, and third grades. How many of them are doing things that are interactive and when it comes to math and technology and science? How many of them are doing things that are just, I'm going to read it in a book, and then maybe we'll do like this, this one thing, but it's not connected to other things and you're not putting it all together? Maybe we could, I don't know, stop you know, separating math and science and technology into separate, you know, subject matters, right? 
you could just start teaching them and people inherently learn because that's how I learned data analysis and things like that. It became an, an encompassing thing. And suddenly I realized to myself that, oh, this is how I apply this or that or this. But it's time for number three on the list from the Federalist. Meaningfully confront the national security state. That's right. The author says the post 9-11 expansion of the surveillance state was one of the worst blunders in American history, and it's time for a Republican Congress in 2023 to acknowledge as much and undo the damage of its predecessors. All right, I can get behind that, I think. He continues to say from turning the Patriot Act against parents at school board meetings to spying on a major party presidential campaign to entrapping ordinary Americans to the relentless and ridiculous diatribes about how right-wing disinformation is the greatest national security threat, or whatever, we have reaped what we have sown. Conservatives in Congress need to deconstruct the apparatus of the national security state with the same fervor that colleges want to dis deconstruct whiteness. That apparatus is now being used against us. Now, what is this all about? This is stopping losing and starting to win. I firmly agree that this is something that we've got to dismantle. And where does it start? It starts with dismantling the Patriot Act. Do you really think that Ditch McConnell, that um, Kevin McCarthy are interested in that idea? Do you really think they're going to spend their political capital to do that? No. Is this the right battle to have? Yes. Because this is the weapon that Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, and the left more egregiously, or more broadly, I should say, have used and abused to come up with the Russian collusion hoax, to come up with the January 6th situation, to help in the 2020 election. They've used the apparatus that was created by the Patriot Act. The warrantless spying on American citizens. All of the things that we have talked about over the course of this show, more broadly over the last, what, three years? Almost two years now? Two, three years? I want you to think about that. Yeah, we need to do it. But do you really think that the GOP is in a position to do it? The only way that the GOP will actually do this third point is if they have a veto-proof majority in both Congress and the Senate. And do you think that's happening? I'll wait. Now, he does point out a really good idea. He says here, at the very least, that uh, at the very least, can we stop exempting spending on defense and intelligence from our demands to cut the budget? Conservatives in Congress should stop delegating things to the bureaucracy, especially the national security bureaucracy. We have no allies. They should assert their own power under the Constitution and refuse to play this game any longer. I absolutely 100% agree because I have a question for you in the audience. How many of you have ever taken time to actually read any of a national security bill or hell, any bill that's in front of Congress or the Senate? Again, I will wait patiently while I sip my American Pride Roasters coffee. The answer is probably none of you. And I don't blame you because who the hell has time to read through this? Well, I have read through some of them, but what you will find in most bills is blank spaces that will, or directives given directly to the bureaucracy to do the job that Congress should be doing because Congress couldn't be bothered to do their constitutional duty. You see, if we just delegate it to the bureaucracy and the <clears throat> experts in those categories, you're totally fine, except, uh, 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 you're not 
totally fine. So on the whole, I agree that there are at least two out of these three that are ways for the GOP to start winning instead of losing. The problem is, do you really think, again, that Kevin McCarthy or Ditch McConnell are going to do anything about it? Because I don't. Now, let's go ahead and move forward here because, again, we saw all that insanity this weekend, right? We saw it all. We saw the firebombing or the attempted firebombing in Madison, Wisconsin. We saw the crazy lady in New York City. We also saw, and I can't play this video because it doesn't make sense if you are not watching it, and this is a podcast as much of it as it is a visual show, um, but in Los Angeles and other places, the attempts by the extreme left pro-abortion side of things to disrupt church. Who do you think that helps? Who do you think? Again, I'll wait. It helps the pro-life side. It helps people actually look to stop the insanity of the left and thus turn to the GOP. And like I said up front, putting the pedal to the metal on these things, putting the pedal to the metal on the extremism of the left, making them go crazy should be part of the strategy here. It should be. And why? Well, because while you and I may believe very strongly in our Christian faith or in your faith in general, whether that's Judaism or the Muslim religion or Hindu or Buddhist, while we may very strongly believe in that, we're in the minority. We are. That is the reality that faces us. And I have some numbers to kind of prove this to you, but it also proves another point. And I'm going to couple a few sets of numbers to help you here. So back in December of last year, 2021, Pew Research told us that 63% of Americans self-identify as Christians. Okay, that's a whole hell of a lot of people, right? Well, 10 years ago, that same number in that same type of a poll was at 75%. Today, nearly 30% of all Americans are religiously unaffiliated, or as they like to refer to themselves as nuns. Now, Christians outnumber that group by about a two-to-one margin here in America. Huge advantage, right? Well, in 2007, when Pew Research began to take a look at religious affiliation, that margin between those unaffiliated and Christian was five to one. So are we heading in the right direction or the wrong direction when it comes to Christianity in America? I would argue we're heading in the wrong direction. However, the opportunity here to be the light, to be the positive force in politics, and be the positive force in the culture is so huge. That's why what we saw in Los Angeles was so huge. What happened there? A largely Latino population at mass at the main cathedral in Los Angeles. Okay. What did they do? They said, uh-uh, no more, no mas, you do not cross this to the abortion activists. And what did they do? They calmly, peacefully, righteously escorted them out. The people in the pews stood up. The people in the pews stood up, pushed them out, and said no. Is that a strong message the GOP can send? Hell, yes it is. And they should be aligning themselves and sending that message to the people that were sitting in those pews doing that, which were 
were largely Hispanic. Now, an NPR poll that was recently done showed that of the Hispanic population in America, 52% of them were likely to vote for the GOP compared to 39% for the Democrats. 52%. That is a majority of the Hispanic population in America is looking to the GOP. Do you see the opportunity that exists? And we have been told for a very long time that what? Pushing the border, pushing the cultural issues was bad because we were becoming a less um, Caucasian society and a more Hispanic society. And what have I been saying for a long time? If we were to just push on these issues, it is good for the Hispanic population. Because when you talk to the legal Hispanic immigrant population, when you talk to them culturally, it turns out they are much, much more conservative in their nature. That doesn't mean all of them are, clearly. But if you were to just be active in your faith, be active and, and engage and declare war on the anti-religious. Yes, I said it. There's you can do that culturally. You how do you engage in that battle? You do what they did in Los Angeles. You push them out of your church. You say no. And that means you push the pro-abortion people sitting in the pews out of the church. You push the pro-abortion pastors like Raphael Warnock out. You stand up for your cultural beliefs. You stand up for the values of life and liberty and pursuit of happiness culturally. You can still win. And oh, by the way, did you know this? That same NPR poll? So if you do the math, 52, 39, that's plus 13, okay? The white population in America is plus 9 to the GOP. I'm doing the math. That's Hispanics have a greater support for the GOP than the white population of America does. So standing up for religious values, cultural values, fighting that cultural war, fighting that war against religion, standing up while you're in the minority, turns out you can win. Think about that. You can win that morality fight if the GOP would just get the hell out of their own way. We don't, hell, we don't even need the GOP to fight that fight for us. We don't. All we need to do, like I said at the top of this show, is put the pedal to the metal and then watch the left go nuts. Because it turns out the more that you push the other direction, the more they're going to pull in their direction. I mean, just take a look at the insanity from this weekend. We had our wonderful, and I, I, and I use that term in air quotes here, our wonderful mayor, Lori Lightfoot, here in Chicago, come out this weekend, well, really, actually yesterday, not this weekend, and say, to my friends in the LGBTQ plus community, the Supreme Court is coming for us next. This moment has to be a call to arms. Now, is that rhetorical, or are you actually um, inciting an insurrection there, uh, Mayor? Because um, that's um, violent language. Now, do I understand what she means by it? Yes, of course, I do. But uh, your logic says that those words have meaning, and the meaning is uh, we're going to take up those guns and, and, and uh, we're, we're calling for violence. It, it, I, I'm just saying. Now, with that in mind, I mean, we saw that, right? That's extreme. We've seen all the other extreme tweets and actions and activist bullcrap, right? 
And then finally, finally, yesterday, we got Joe Biden via visa v Jen Psaki finally coming out and condemning violence. Or you could have just said, we will never, ever, ever support that um, before it happened. Because you, you knew that the violent extremist left were telling you they were going to do it this weekend. Just, just saying. I, I, I just, at this point, I just don't. So, where's the loss is what I'm trying to get at. Where's the loss by putting your pedal to the metal when it comes to exposing leftist logic? Every time that we have done it, every time that we have engaged in the culture war and actually done something like the bill in Florida, like the situation in Virginia, right, with critical race theory, every single time that we've pushed on an educational value issue, every time that we've pushed on a cultural issue and then expose the left, let the left expose themselves for the real radical position, the positions that are way outside of the mainstream. Because here's the other part. The cultural things that we're looking for are pretty normal. They're not that extreme. When you do that, you watch the left go extreme and you win. You win. We've even seen the African-American population numbers go up with GOP support. What, what do you see here that suggests that you would lose? Engage. Don't be afraid. And there's another lesson that was learned this weekend. When it comes to COVID-19, and how afraid we were to speak up, by and large. Except for not this show, not Steve Dace, not a few others who, from the get-go, saw this as an absolute canard. Not that the virus wasn't serious, but that our reaction to it was an absolute canard from the get-go. I bring you this wonderful, wonderful video from... Um, the, the man who pushed the panic button probably the second most next to Dr. Anthony Fauci, excuse me, Lord, Savior, President Dr. Anthony Fauci, that would be one Bill Gates. It wasn't until early February when I was in a meeting that experts at the foundation said, there's no way, you know, this, there's been too much uh, travel without diagnosis uh, for us to contain this. And then at that point, we didn't really understand the fatality rate. You know, we didn't understand that it's a fairly low fatality rate and that it's a disease mainly of the elderly, kind of like flu is, although a bit different than that. So that was a pretty scary period right. uh, where the world didn't go on alert, including the United States, nearly as fast as it needed to. That's right, folks. Bill Gates saying, well, we couldn't have ever have known this or that or this or that, except for we knew every one of those things. And I knew it as of April or May of 2020. Yet Bill Gates, quote unquote, one of the smartest men in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure he is. Or, or alternatively, he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about because uh, he had blinders on the entire time or because he was going to be able to profit from it the entire time. Oh, my bad. We're seeing this all over the place right now. We couldn't have possibly. Yes, we could have. Yes, we could have because we saw it from the very get go. The numbers, the data, when you stratified the data, showed us this from the very get-go. The worst that it could have been was 1%, and it turns out to be closer to 0.1%, which is just a bad flu season. And yes, a bunch of people have died. A whole hell of a lot of people have died from this novel virus. That is true. 
but a whole hell of a lot of people die of the flu every single year. Every six months. The gaslighting that these people are attempting on America and on the world is unbelievable in one respect, but totally predictable in another respect. Because we're supposed to be able to trust the experts like <clears throat> our Lord Savior President Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's been wrong and then right and then wrong on every single facet of this and every other communicable disease he has ever attempted to tackle. He, um, oh, that's right. Uh, Bill Gates um, doesn't know everything about science because he founded Microsoft. Woo! By the way, he didn't just found Microsoft by his own. Just, just throwing that out there. The man is not a know-all, end-all, be all. Neither am I, by the way. I am far, far from perfect when it comes to understanding every aspect of the disease and, and virus and da, da da da. What I am relatively decent at is being able to take a look at numbers, analyze the data, and, and give you an interpretation. And more importantly, analyzing those who are attempting to analyze the data. Like the IHME modeling, like the modeling that came out of London, right? The one that scared the bejesus out of everybody, but was flatly and patently wrong because it didn't have correct data in. Garbage data in, garbage data out, as I always like to say. But this is the gaslighting that we are about to see. Don't fall for it and don't ever let them get away with it. Don't. Don't accept it and move on. No. You hammer them every single time from here until the day they die. You, you put that, that around their neck and you absolutely never let it go. Because what they did to our society over the past two years, whether that's the increase in teenage suicide, drug addiction, um, alcoholism in teenagers, whether that's the educational disruption, whether that is the joblessness, right? Whether that is the inflation that has gone on and the wrecking of our economy, whether that is the stupidity of mask up forever, stand six feet away, the irreparable harm they did to the scientific model, by the way, whatever part of society you look at, they screwed it up. Over the past two years, they did it. That includes Trump. That includes Fauci, Burks. That includes McConnell. That includes McCarthy. That includes Pelosi and Schumer and every single one of these politicians on Capitol Hill that have voted for endless spending. Every single one of them that forced a jab in your arm to go to work. Every single one of them who said, but if it just saves a life. Every single one of them that made you mask up on a plane for two, three hours at a time. Every single one of them that closed your business or made it so restrictive that it was impossible for you to be able to continue in business. And also, every single one of you who did not have the courage to stand up for your business or your family. Shame. You don't deserve the ability to say, oh, you know, we just didn't know, and we were just playing us. No, we knew. All of us knew the information was right in front of us the whole time. You could have done this in real time. You could have gone from the abundance of caution to, oh, by the way, it turns out as we really actually look at the physical data in front of us, eh, it's not as bad as it seems to be. And we're going to suffer. You could be honest. We are going to suffer some death, a lot of it, early on in this situation. And it's going to come in waves. 
but the mitigation strategies that we have been trying aren't working. The continuous two years. Now they're talking about doing it again in places based off of CDC, medium, high, low. As if the masking is the issue, as if all of these things, these people don't understand and they're still going to try to do the same crap to you that they pulled two years ago. When are you going to stand up? When are you going to say enough is enough? When are we going to stop giving Bill Gates a freaking platform? When are we going to stop giving these people platforms to screw with our lives and our livelihoods, which affects our lives? If you haven't figured that out by now, what they did to us, if you haven't figured out my anger and my righteous anger, is unbelievably catastrophic. It is unforgivable. It is totally unforgivable. And with that, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Please be smart, be safe, be kind, and as always, Matthew 547. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.